Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. I'm honored today to welcome Erin Fugate to the Morning Glory Project. Erin is a survivor. From between the ages of 11 to 21, she was raised as a, quote, resident of a spiritual cult. Deprived of food, education, and freedom of thought, Erin was isolated from the world she was taught to fear and indoctrinated by the twisted spirituality of the leader. Erin emerged from the cult experience unprepared to identify abuse or protect herself from it. Perhaps her most challenging deficit is being unable to resist an authoritative voice, requiring her, even today, to exercise great care in selecting the people that she can truly trust. Having overcome addiction, anxiety, depression, and other limitations from years of abuse, she's now dedicated to facilitating the rise of the female visionary. Erin's the mother of two daughters, wife, and a business owner. She knows how hard it can be for women to carve out a path for their dreams and entrepreneurship. By sharing her passion for natural wellness, using essential oils and other skills and techniques, and entrepreneurship with inspired business owners, she helps women to find their strengths and to pursue their dreams. Thank you so much, Erin Fugate, for being part of the Morning Glory Project. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Betsy. I'm happy to be here. So Erin, tell me how it is that you ended up in a cult at age 11. How, tell me how that happened. I reflect on this often. And I think what was happening for my mom, she's also a, a survivor of abuse and she turned to drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. One day she decided to get off the drugs. And when you stop using it can be really shocking to your system. And I think her mental health wasn't prepared for the onslaught of emotions and feelings that would happen without the drugs. And so she was susceptible and discovered this idea of neo-spirituality. New, it was called the New Age Movement back in the 80s. And she really found a place within it, a place where she belonged, where people didn't think she was crazy. And she actually became a leader in that world and helped others open up to their psychic gifts, begin to learn how to engage in things called channeling. And so when she was approached by who became the leader of the cult to mentor her, for my mom, she finally had a purpose. Well, and she was probably felt honored and chosen and selected and special and all those things that she might not have otherwise felt as as a person who's recovering from whatever her own abuse had been and to say nothing of her her drug abuse recovery right we're, we're by the way we're not naming this particular cult because of legal matters that are still pending so this was this took place in the state of Oregon and you were part of that so she took you 
her 11 year old were you the only her only child yes and she was and your father was not part of that you you didn't come as a threesome you she was not with your dad at the time right so she took you and and became a resident of this what several hundred acre ranch so tell me about the ranch tell me what that was like and kind of paint me a picture sure well the the spiritual organization started in Southern California. Okay. And then there was a moment where the leader said, I'm moving to Oregon and I'm purchasing a 180 acre ranch. And a lot of her students, my mom included, followed her to Oregon. And it was very much this idealist vision. We purchased this ranch. It was something we were doing together as a community. We were going to go and, um, build facilities and have retreats and and help people around the world to awaken to their divinity. So l- let me pause you for just one second, because this so ties in. We've had other guests on the Morning Glory Project who are survivors of either cults or what you call extreme religion. And one of the things that, that keeps coming out to me is that how many times what the cult leader does is appeal to the the sense of goodness of the followers, that they want to make the world a better place. They're saving the world. They're protecting people from things. They're, they're saving the planet. They're doing good works. And so it sounds as though that was some of the lore too. So it wasn't like she was recruiting a band of evildoers. She was recruiting people that wanted to do good in the world. Yes. One of the concepts that was spoken about was something she referred to as world changes. So this is back in the late eighties. It was before uh, the AIDS epidemic was Mm. starting, you know, to pick up earthquakes were happening in Southern California. So it was this idea that the world is going to go through these changes. It's going to go through this dimensional shift right? It's kind of similar to what we're seeing right now. Exactly. I was just going to say, here we are again. And now it's fires, right? It's always happening in the world. We're always on the precipice of this, but she really used that, that fear factor and that desire to be a part of making a difference in her recruitment. Mm. So the idea was the world's about to end essentially, and let's get together, meditate and pray and uplift the planet so we can usher everyone into the fifth dimension. Hmm. Well, let let me pause here too, to say we're referring to the, to this cult leader, spiritual leader, if you want to call it that as she, which is kind of an exception. Most leaders of cults are male. And so this was rather an exceptional leader in this way. It just, it strikes me as unique. So do you have any, any observations about that? What's interesting about her position is she believed that she was channeling an ascended master and that was a male. Hmm. So what was created was kind of a good cop, bad cop situation where the woman, she was the leader, but she wasn't the leader, but she was the one who did the abuse. She was the one who got angry. She was the one who was unpredictable. And then when the spirit would come into her body, he was God. He was the Lord. Holy and good. And he did nothing wrong. Everything was perfect. So she was able to play that kind of masculine, feminine, negative, positive, and could blame, they could blame things on one another. Hmm. And so I think she, you know, she used that 
to her benefit. But just because she was a woman doesn't mean there wasn't sexual abuse. Well, and that's the next thing too, because uh, nearly invariably, <laughs> nearly invariably it comes around to sex when, when there are male leaders in there. And so when you think, oh, a female leader, maybe for once we're absent that. Well, no, <laughs> that's not how this worked. So tell me, you took a rather unique place in this organization as a young person, as at age 11. Can you tell me about that and how that, that, because you say that this, this leader was essentially in charge of your sexuality. Tell me more about that. Well, at the time when I was there, I didn't think there was anything wrong with how I was being treated. I felt special. Around age 12, I was approached by the leader and asked to be a ceremonial virgin, I guess is the best way to say it. Hmm. So there would be um, multi-day ceremonies with chanting and praying and a fire. And I was required to wear all white and nobody could talk to me. Nobody could touch me. I held this position as ceremonial virgin hmm. and the controlling of my sexuality went to the point where men who lived at the cult would get in trouble if they looked at me sideways. Hmm. I had a boyfriend at one point when I was about 15 years old and I was required to break up with him at a certain point because we were getting too sexual, I guess. And then when I was about 16 years old, she, the leader told me who I needed to lose my virginity to. And this was a 35 year old man. So there it starts. Well, and let me say also that not all of the girls were treated as ceremonial virgins. Many of them were indeed sexually abused during that time. And and by the way, even, even in the treatment of you as a virgin, in a way that's a sexual abuse of a different kind. It's a domination of your sexuality, even if it's not a physical molestation in the same way, or at least that's how I think of it. Do you think of it that way? I do think of it that way because I also wasn't cared for as a woman. There was no one there to guide me through my first menstruation. When I started to have visible breasts, instead of someone kindly taking me and helping me get a bra, I was, I got in trouble for it. For becoming a sexual being? For becoming a sexual being and not hiding it, not understanding. I remember it being a big deal uh, when I started to become a woman and show feminine shape mm -hmm. that other women at the cult were jealous of me and I was causing problems in their relationship. But all of this was turned upon me as though it was my fault. Hmm. Well, and meanwhile, let's not skip another part of this, which is that you were not living you know, in a, in a palace and being, you know, treated, you know, having your grapes peeled for you because you were the ceremonial journey virgin here, you were living in a goat barn and not eating enough. There was not food. There was not care given. Correct. Tell me a little bit about those conditions. As I unpack this, I, I actually realized that I was trafficked. Mm. So my, my day to day I didn't know what I was going to eat. It really depended upon what was being served to the rest of the residents, what I could find in cabinets. And I didn't know where I was going to sleep. Sometimes 
yes, my home was the goat barn. Sometimes it was the big house where the leader lived. Sometimes it was a tent. Sometimes it was a dormitory. But there was nowhere that was my home and there was no adult caring for me. And where was your mom during all of this? So my mom was at times the head cook. So she would be making food for everybody else, but not me. And then at another time, she started traveling the world, teaching psychic abilities and meditation and channeling techniques. And she would have to tie the big portion of her income. Okay. So her money came back to the cult largely. Yes. And you called her in our, in our conversation prior to this, when you called her the cash cow, yes. she was out earning dough and you were there unattended. And at some point she even ceded guardianship of you, correct? To the leader. Did you become adopted or fostered or how did that work? I don't think it was anything legal, legally binding. So it was just sort of their arrangement. Yeah. She did have to put something in writing that she, the language I remember is she was asked to, and it was an honor. It was considered an honor. Hmm. She was asked to turn over her parenting rights to the leader. So I would become her foster daughter. That's how sometimes I was referred to as her foster daughter. Hmm. Um, it was very emotional and very sad and horrible for my mom because it was mixed. It was part, this is an honor. Your daughter is now a daughter of God, but it was also part, you're a horrible person. You're not fit to be a mother. So you need to turn over. So she was shamed into it too. Shamed into it. She was definitely, she was definitely put in a position where she was made to feel as though she was a bad person and she was a bad mother. And where was your dad during this process? I know they were separated or divorced or whatever. They got divorced when I was two and my dad was in and out of uh, recovery for narcotics. Hmm. So he was having his own wars. He was having his own wars. He did try to uh, come and take me out at one point, but the leader was so financially powerful that she just got her lawyers to scare him and he never tried again. So Erin, in the interest of time, I'm going to sum up something of what you said and so that we can get to the end of this story in a beautiful way. So at 16, you, so you were told to have sex with a guy who was 35 years old, the guy who came in to tattoo people voluntarily, of all things. And after that, you were no longer the ceremonial virgin, <laughs> which, so that was a demotion of sorts, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm saying that with air quotes around it because I don't know what you call that. It was a change of status in terms of how you were looked at in the organization, and you became a little rebellious. You were invited then to leave for a while, which you did, and you went and they, you were dropped off in Hawaii, if I remember. Yes. And so there you were on your own, essentially, at 16, having had no education, having had neglect and abuse. And so, gee, the plot is kind of predictable at that point, isn't it? That you didn't exactly, you know, become entrepreneur of the year or something. You struggled and found drugs and inappropriate people and 
inappropriate and dangerous partners during that time. And then you returned to the ranch. Tell me about that. Tell me how you got back and why. So I was in Hawaii for a couple of years. And as you said, I just experienced all the bad things. You confirmed that the world was as terrible as they told you it was, right? And the world was terrible, absolutely terrible. And I much preferred being back in Oregon with what I knew. And so I, I returned home and very quickly was invited to come back to the ranch. At this point, it was in a employee type of relationship. They actually paid me to do childcare and housework and things like that. And you stayed there then from 18 to 21. Yes. What caused you to leave finally? What caused you at 21? You say you escaped essentially. This wasn't cutting through a fence or something kind of escape, but you escaped in what way? Tell me what you mean by that. Well, now I had the contrast. I knew what life was like at the cult and I knew what life was like out in the world. And I was having a really hard time making them both match up in my mind. Hmm. The reality, what was true. Right. And I think that friction caused, I wasn't a, um, I was more rebellious. I did what I wanted. Well, you were no longer a true believer. I wasn't a hundred percent a true believer and I wanted more. I had tasted what it was like to be in the world and have friends and have interests and have a point of view. Have food, have freedom, have sexuality, have all those, even though it was maybe on the more dangerous edges of some of that, it was, I guess the word that I'm looking for is having your own authority of self. I think I had tasted freedom. Hmm. And so now I was willing, I was a willing member of this cage and it was scary to be outside of the cage, but I, I wanted it more. And that friction just caused the leader and I to have arguments. And there was a final argument. I don't even remember what it was over. And I think we both realized that I didn't belong anymore. And as is often the case with leaders of groups like this, or, and I say groups like this, I'm not saying that everything is a cult, but we've all had a narcissistic boss or a, a, a church leader that's a little overzealous about him or herself, usually himself, often himself. So you kind of rub, rubbed up against the narcissistic edges there of, of somebody. And, and if, if you know anything about narcissists, they don't like people that disagree with them. It just doesn't typically work out so well. And so you were, you became a challenge. So you were then free to go, so to speak. So one would think then that, of course, you, you've got your freedom. You're going to go out and make healthy, wonderful choices and build a beautiful life. But as you put it, you found your next abuser. Tell me just briefly what that meant. Well, exactly what you're saying. I, I got out into the world and I was free, but there was this discomfort inside of me, this agitation, what I now know, an, an anxiety. I, I didn't know my place in the world. And so the moment I met someone who looked at me in that same way, I guess that way of looking at me was 
the interest, the intense interest, the wanting to own, the wanting to control, that was love to me. That felt familiar. It felt familiar. And I was head over heels, (laughs) head over heels for it. And I think it, as I reflect, I think there was no other choice for me. I didn't know how to live in the world without someone dictating what I should do and what I should eat and how I should be. So you came into contact with somebody who was abusive, who took control over you and didn't let you have, here you were out of the cage and in the cage again in a different, in a completely different way. You ultimately extracted yourself from that and got into recovery, 12-step recovery, as well as other growth practices. And now you're the mother of two girls. How old are they? Uh, Five and two. Five and two. Well, you're a busy mommy then. You have a partner who does not dominate you. Something you said to me, Erin, in our conversation prior to this one has really stuck, and I want to highlight it, because you said that even to this day, because... Do you mind saying your age now? I'm 46. So 46 today from 21. Even at 46 and an entrepreneur and a businesswoman and a mother and and all of those amazing things, there is still a part of you that has a really hard time saying no to somebody who has an authoritative voice, somebody who is willing to dominate or push you into saying or doing or being what you are not that it's really hard for you to resist that. What do you do about that? You recognize it. I recognize it. And it's not so much that it's hard for me to resist. It's that I crave it. Mm. I want someone to tell me what to do. Mm. But you also recognize that's not healthy for you. Yes. So how do you remedy that then? So the way I remedy it is first understanding and acknowledging that it is uncomfortable for me to be an adult Mm -hmm. that I actually feel like a young child looking for the adult. Mm -hmm. And then I'm very careful who I surround myself with. If I start to get into a relationship or a friendship or a business arrangement with someone who likes to dominate, I pull myself back. That's not a safe place for me to be. And I stumble all the time. It's not something that I've, I've fixed and I figured out on a regular basis. I will, I will fall into these relationships. They can happen with, a, you know, in the coaching industry, that's a place where it often happens. Uh, it can happen in business partnerships. It can happen in friendships. It can happen in a relationship with a therapist or a, a, a consultant or a coach or something like that. Right. Yes. And certainly it could happen in a romantic relationship, but you are married and tell me, tell me how your relationship with your husband is different than that. And why my husband, when you first meet my husband, you think that he's very easygoing and adaptable, which he is but he's one of those leaders that leads through his patience. So he does give me that element of the masculine confidence and guidance, but he does it in a way where he never is overbearing. He never tells me what to do. 
he always honors my authentic voice and he loves me for who I truly am. So I think I've found a partner who is the perfect mix of someone I can lean on when I'm feeling scared or I'm uncertain, but someone who never tries to change who I am. Well, that's, that's a beautiful model for lots of partnerships, business, romantic friendship, and other, I, even, even as a, as a parent, I feel like that when I was raising my, my sons are both adults now, but when I was raising them on one hand, I wanted to be a strong parent that provided guidance and limits and all those things. On the other hand, I wanted them to develop their own agency and have their own voice and be who they are and celebrate that. And then when they got out out of range too far, it was my job to bring them back in but your husband is not a parent. So he doesn't need to guide you in those ways and how beautiful that you've chosen and that you continue to choose people that honor who you are. Oh, if all of us did that, if all of us did that, (laughs) how beautiful the world would be. So today you have a, you have a podcast also called Jasmine and Juniper Mm -hmm. and which you explore all of the things that are essential to life and business and growth and happiness and health and all those things, sometimes with guests and sometimes on your own. I know that you, you have a business that you use essential oils and those kinds of things to bring about wellness. You're looking at holistic health and those kinds of matters. So folks can find you at Jasmine spelled J A S M I N E and juniper.com. You can find Jasmine and Juniper as a podcast. You can find her on all of the social media with that that handle, so to speak. And Erin, I wonder if just in closing, if I can ask you one last thing, and that is if you were talking to somebody who loves somebody being dominated by others, either in an abusive relationship or in extreme religion or whatever, what would you say to them to, to be of help to the one that they love? To never give up on them. It's understandable if you have to set a boundary for your own health, but just know that they will need you one day when they're ready to leave. You can't force it, but as long as they know that you're always there, there will come a day that they could possibly call you. Hmm. And isn't it nice for everyone to know that even if they can't use it now, that there's a door that they can go through. Right the door. Yeah. Erin Fugate, thank you so much for sharing your story here with me and for trusting me with it. I look forward to our future encounters and, and I know that there's somebody out there listening that needs to hear this exact story today. Thank you. Thank you, Betsy. My pleasure. Erin Fugate came to my awareness because of another Morning Glory Project guest, and that's Lauren Trantham. And Lauren, of course, if you remember, founded Ride My Road, in which she does photography of mostly women, but occasionally some men too, who are survivors of sex trafficking. So when someone like Lauren tells you you need to talk to somebody, you do. And I'm so glad that she sent Aaron my way. When I think about Aaron's story, It makes me, on one hand, just infuriated that somebody would take advantage of a child, of a person, of an adult, for their own purposes. I really have come to believe that other than natural disasters and disease, 
that I'll bet you 90 plus percent of the world's agony comes from an abuse of power. A parent to a child, a priest to a parishioner, a boss to an employee, someone physically more powerful than someone less, or a spiritual leader to a follower. And so the abuse of power, frankly, it pisses me off. <laughs> and it it seems that when power is given, it ought to be used honorably. Imagine, just imagine how much easier so many people's lives would be if not for the person that's supposed to care for them, harming them. So I'm touched by how Erin got through. Now, in our conversation prior to the one that I recorded, she talked about how she had no schooling, but that she read and read and read books, and that kind of got her through at the time when she was small. But then she talked, the extra bloom that I want to share from our conversation that you just heard is that her battle is ongoing, that she still has to struggle with that desire to cede her authority over to somebody else. And she has to resist that. And that part of the way that she does that is by trying to identify it quickly and by being really selective about the people that she chooses as partners in business, in friendship, and certainly in her marriage. Choosing the people around us that can honor who we are, recognize our vulnerabilities, but not take advantage of them and not abuse whatever power we give them. That is a great big extra bloom. It's a whole field of blooms. So I hope with that, that you are inspired to choose people around you that are healthy for you, that support your best self, that celebrate your autonomy and your personal agency, and that love you for who you are. And that that is part of you helping you to bloom. Thanks so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. Take good care.